Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Join Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with more than 3 million members. You can win up to 25 times your money by picking more or less. Download the app today and use code MIB for a first deposit match of up to $100. New Year's is now in the rearview mirror. By now, some of the excitement about our New Year's resolutions may be dying down, much like my excitement for Chelsea Football Club as we get further and further into the season. If you're looking for performance apparel that can help give you the extra push you need to keep up with your health goals, Viore has you covered. Viore creates incredibly versatile and comfortable active wear designed to look great in everyday life in and out of the gym, or in my case, on or off the tennis court. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint by offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 and beyond. They are utilizing better sustainable materials for their products, empowering your best active life. With Viore, you can feel good about the things you buy and also how they are made. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash MIB. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash MIB. Not only Will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any US orders over $75 and free returns. Trust me, go to viore.com slash MIB and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's Welcome to a Men in Blazers pod special. Our guest today, one of England's truly great modern writers, his 2010 novel, The Finkler Question, won the Man Booker Prize for fiction. For those of you saying, what is the Man Booker Prize? It's like the PFA Player of the Year Award, but for words. His new novel, Shylock Is My Name, out now on Amazon and in all good bookstores. We welcome to the pod... The one and only, one of my childhood heroes, Mr. Howard Jacobson. It's lovely to be here, but I'm not sure about this childhood hero business. Howard, every article I've ever read about you, it calls you one of two things. Either Howard Jacobson, the English Philip Roth, or Howard Jacobson, the Jewish Jane Austen. Which do you prefer? I call myself the Jewish Jane Austen because I got <laughs> sick of being called the English Philip Roth. I once heard you explain Roth. You said he's not an influence. You were asked why and you said, I didn't read Roth until I started writing. And someone said, you like Philip Roth? And I thought, well, who's he? Didn't he write a dirty book about wanking? That's not quite the way I would have put it, Roger. I would have put it in a rather more refined way than that. But you're quite right. I didn't know who he was properly until someone said, this guy writes like Philip Roth. So I thought I'd look at Philip Roth. I thought this Philip Roth is fantastic. People say I write like Philip Roth. That is a great compliment. And I take it as a great compliment. You were born 1942, Second World War German bombs dropping on the north of England. You grew up in post-war Manchester. How would you describe Manchester to our listeners? I mean, they know it through United and City. They imagine it to be a magical Disneyland filled with Ryan Giggs's, Yaya Torres, Oasis. What's it really like? It's even better than that. It's the greatest city in, in the country. 
it's not the biggest city in the country. It's second to, to London and maybe even Birmingham. But it's got the most life and vitality in the country. People are sardonic in Manchester. There's no sky, you see. There's just dark all the time and rain all the time. That's what people say about Manchester, but it's true, which is why it became a great cotton centre. Don't ask me why, but cotton flourishes where there's no light or sky. So it was a rich, industrial, powerful, powerful city, 200 miles north of London. And because we're not the capital, we're very ironic about people who think they belong to the centre of things. So Londoners don't really have a sense of humour. Manchester has got the best sense of humour. It's produced an, any number of good writers and comedians and sportsmen. We're very, very dry and ironical, very warm and very welcoming, very sarcastic, but with a real sense of regional vitality. Not unlike Liverpool. I know the two cities hate uh, each other, hate uh, each other. Liverpool. Nothing like Liverpool. Liverpool you put in the pocket of Manchester Liverpool. Oh, it's not true. Liverpool is a used handkerchief to Manchester's <laughs> silk scarf. You know, when I was a kid and I'd travel from Liverpool to Manchester, I knew when I was halfway home on the train because the graffiti on the side of the tracks would, tra- would change from die scousers to Manchester scum. And as soon as I saw Manchester scum, I knew I was almost home. <laughs> I felt very heartwarming. But in Liverpool, we always thought, I mean, Liverpool is the unofficial capital of Ireland. Today's St. Patrick's Day. But it's also got a special kind of culture, mostly because it was a shipping capital of the world. And it was really the, the, the mouth where America kind of funneled everything that was great in America and funneled into England through the docks of Liverpool. So the music hit Liverpool first, the culture, the start, they all came through Liverpool. And they, that's one of the reasons I always think Liverpool got its swagger. But for Manchester, it was that it wasn't London. That was the, the driver. We felt that we were more sophisticated than Londoners because we had a better sense of humour. And what you say about things originating in Liverpool is true. Things came in via Liverpool, but then they needed refining. (laughs) And they had to get to Manchester before we gave it a little bit of sophistication. So Liverpool's got this raw edge, and all Liverpoolians think they're very raw, and they'll talk to you about what raw edge they've got till you're bored out of your brain with them, which takes about two minutes. And then you move along the road to Manchester, and you get that raw edge with a lot of sophistication added. So if you want if you want rawness, wit, quickness, speed, the sense of immigrant life, but 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 not the ponciness of London, Manchester gives it to you. And if you want cheap electronics, <clears throat> come to Liverpool. You had the greatest, probably the most quintessential Manchester experience. You just told me before we went on air, George Best stole your girlfriend. Yeah, well, before that, don't forget, I was uh, I was fourteen or fifteen years old when the when the Munich disaster happened. I don't know if your listeners know about all this, but the terrible crash that destroyed a great young Manchester United team, an air crash in Munich, nineteen fifty eight. Yeah, and it nearly killed the manager, the great Matt Busby, but it killed um, some in, of the some wonderful, an entire, wonderful players. An entire great yeah, young yeah, raw, yeah. Tommy Taylor, Tommy. a wonderful centre. I mean, Duncan fantastic. Edwards. Yeah. And I heard about it in the gym changing room, in the, actually in the showers. And suddenly somebody pushes the shower door open and is crying. He said, something terrible has happened. Manchester United are all dead. We thought, what's he talking about? And then we, real, then we realised it was true and some other kind of kids got the news. And it was a terrible shock. You know, the, this great young team, Busby's Babes, they were, they were known as. It was one of the great football t- new football teams to be coming along. And 
wiped out like that. So we all became Manchester United. I became a Manchester United fan at that moment. I could have gone either way before. In but time at that of moment, tragedy. Yes, we, we stuck with them. And I'm still now to this day, although they're not worth watching at the moment, but I'm still a Manchester United fan because of what happened, what happened then. Then, of course, the, the team was rebuilt. And it then became a really vitalistic young team in the early 60s with, with Bobby Charlton, the wonderful Bobby Charlton, <sighs> the gentleman with that wonderful goal-scoring foot. And then and one and of the truly great haircuts of the yes, modern game. Yes, yes, oh, one yes. One of the great <laughs> Yeah, I can do that. Not bald, mate. Carry I, on. I can do that. My hair <laughs> flies back like that. And, of course, George Best, the marvellous George Best, who so was, was just a delight to watch. Almost he, an honour for him to steal your girlfriend. Well... Every boy in Manchester that I knew suffered that honour. Whether it, how, much, how much of it was true, I don't know. Because it, it could have been that the excuse a girl used if she wanted to get rid of you was George Best is waiting in the car. But I can't tell you the number of times you chatted a girl up in a coffee bar. It was coffee bars in those days. That was all the work, coffee bars. You'd chat a girl up in a coffee bar and she'd suddenly say, well, I've got to go now. George Best is waiting for me. And you'd run to the door... And sure, that was George Best in a Lamborghini or something. But the mystery was, all over Manchester, other girls were saying that to other boys. So either he got around at great speed, yep. or there were, there were a lot of him. Oh, it's George but Best he was again. a very handsome... I had, I, had a, I had a, but it's just George Best again. <laughs> it was a very handsome, smart boy, and he was kind of... And you loved him as a footballer, but it was hard to forgive this stealing of your girlfriend. A friend of mine used to work in the Czech embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., and the Czechs had an amazing hockey team with a fantastic goalkeeper, goaltender Dominic Hasek. And he went home one day, the friend of a friend, and he found his wife in bed with a man. And he jumped in, he was about to punch him, and he found out it was Dominic Hasek in bed with his wife. And he said minutes later, he just opened up, he just got a couple of beers. Hasek was in bed with his wife, drank beers together. That's what I imagine it probably felt like when George Best Stole the guys. Well, well like I never, I never cracked a bottle of wine uh, with George Best and one of my girlfriends. That's what it felt like for me if Tony Hibbert came in and 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 did me in that way. There's no. Do you want me to try and fix that for you? <laughs> Tony Hibbert's able to take well care of himself in the macho department. There's no finer way to understand the true essence of all that's Manchester to me than reading one of my favourite of your books, The Mighty Waltzer. To me, controversial this statement's going to be the finest ping-pong novel ever written, set amongst the open-air flea markets of 1950s Manchester, where you came of age working with your dad. You said of the book, which came out when you were 57 in 1999, you said it took you so long to mine this rich vein of personal experience that a part of you felt, quote, ashamed when you finally wrote it. Yes, I didn't realise I had this great story to tell. I was too busy writing poncy stories about, you know, my version of Downton Abbey, country life, (laughs) hotel, you know, and I knew nothing about it. And you'd scratch around, what can I write about now, what can I... And you suddenly realise a little bit late, my God, you were sitting on a great story. You're right, it's, I mean, it has been called the greatest ping-pong novel ever written. You'd be hard-pressed to think what the second greatest ping-pong novel ever written. I can see you searching <laughs> and nothing coming to mind. But it's such a fantastic it's in story. Chinese, I'm sure. It's such a fantastic story about coming of age, and it's a kind of tragic, mock-heroic tragic comedy because it's the story of somebody not a million miles from me who dreamed of wealth and immense success and the adoration of beautiful women on account of his being a ping-pong player. As it turns out, not that many women in the world are enamoured of ping-pong players. In fact, when I talk about this book and I ask all the beautiful women in the room to stand up, put their hand up and name their favourite ten table tennis players, they don't know any. 
They don't know any. People, are, people do not fall in love with table tennis players because of their table tennis players. So this was the sadness at the heart of my... the comic <sighs> sadness at the heart of my book. He, a, he never is the great player he wanted to be. Yeah. And B, even if he had been the great player he wanted to be, he would not have made any money and no one would have fallen in love with him. But I was it's nearly... Like being, it's like being a soccer podcaster in America. It's as sad as that, is yeah. it? Well, then, you Probably know, this, and that's why you like the novel. That's but clearly... Yeah. I wrote a cultural history of ping-pong a couple of years ago and you wrote a beautiful essay for it where you said ping-pong is not really a game. It's an approach to life. Ping-pong players, when they lie in bed, don't think about the victories that their bats inflicted, they think about the points lost, they think about the defeats, they agonise on the dark side of life. To this day, to this day, I will run into people, I'll be on a book <laughs> tour, somebody will come up to me and they'll go, you won't remember me. But in 1959, you and I played a match together. I said, who won? He said, who won? It was 2020 on the, on the final, in the final set. And then you did a drop shot and I came running. They remember everything that happened. They don't forget a single point. They know every single result. I played, I was at, I don't want to brag here, but I was at Cambridge University and I played for Cambridge University Breaking against away, Oxford. And my memory had been that we'd been thrashed by Oxford. That's, I'd carried this shame for years. And then a few years ago, Let it I, out, out. I ran in... It's out. I, we were thrashed <laughs> by Oxford. And a few years ago, I ran into somebody, and he said, do you remember we played together for Cambridge? I said, yeah, it's a shaming moment. He said, why was it a shaming moment? I said, we were thrashed. He said, we weren't. We beat them. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? We beat Oxford. We lost. No, no, we beat them. We, it was 10 rubbers, 8-2 we beat them. I said, no, we lost 10-0. He said, give me your email and I'll send you the cut. I gave him my email. He sent me the cutting from the paper. We beat them. Why did I remember that we'd lost? Because you've got a beautiful approach to life. You like to revel sick. in It's nothing beautiful. Agony. I'm sick. I'm sick. Which I'm you... interested in loss. I'm interested in ignominy. I'm interested in shame. Where's the beauty in this? But you get good jokes out of it. And that's what my Mighty Waltzer novel, it's full of the jokes of wanting to excel at something that nobody else wants to excel at. Revelling in the agony is what you told me drew so many Jews in the 70s and 80s towards Manchester City. It's a Jewish thing to want loss, to complain about it. Why did no Jews at that period support Manchester United? Why was it all... Because in that period, Manchester City were not a good team. They They didn't have a gulf billionaire to support them so they weren't very good Manchester United was the team no Jews supported Manchester United and why because on when they came back from a match which the Jews wanted to go I oh, know and wanted to clop their head and scream at their wives I don't know why I go I don't know why I'm wasting my life another lot that's what they they got the satisfaction no fun in coming back going and the wife says, well, how did it go? Yeah, we won 5-1, we won 6 No fun in that. The fun is, oh, no, not another loss. Losing. There is a beauty in the philosophy of losing. And I like to think I am one of, the, you know, the great philosophers in our time of loss. It's the only religion that I believe in sometimes. I think that's the truth. One of the things I love about your career, and young listeners with big dreams will take heart from your life story, Howard Jacobson. <laughs> you were late to find your voice. You didn't become a writer until you were 41 years of age. Yeah, and that's because I didn't know what stories I had. I wanted to be a writer when I was born wanting to be a writer. I was born into the world and I spoke sentences. I came into the world, my parents, my mother assured me I was speaking sentences like within a day. He's brilliant. They came into the world and they slapped me and I went, oi, don't do, oh, what's this? <laughs> I was born disappointed and full of complaints and full of words. It was all I had. I had words. That was what 
God gave me words. So within weeks or at months or at years of being born, I knew I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to tell lies. So I wanted to write novels, not non-fiction. I wanted to make up stories, tell lies, because that impressed people and it gave me power over the world and it enabled me to rewrite my life. But I couldn't get going. And why? Because I wanted to write Downton Abbey kind of stuff. And I, what did I know about... You wanted England? to write great English novels. Exactly. Big about the upper middle class... Jane in Austen. Howard Correct. Jacobson, Charlotte Bronte, put yourself in that ether. Correct, immediately, immediately, about a world I knew nothing about. And it took me ages to realise what I knew about was staring me in the face. Failure, teaching at this miserable institution called Wolverhampton <laughs> Polytechnic. Wolverhampton, a place that's only well-known, was only well-known for a while because it had a football ground. And do you know that the final humiliation for me was that when I was teaching at Wolverhampton Polytechnic, they gave me a teaching room in Wolverhampton... Wanderers football ground, Molyneux, and they gave me a room at a teaching room in Wolverhampton Wanderers football ground. Yeah, the, and I thought that was so absurd, I wrote a novel about Wolverhampton it. Wolverhampton Polytechnic, which essentially, to locate it for you listeners, it's essentially like the college and community, and it, it was so financially struggling, they merge facilities with the struggling local football club and teach lessons in the locker rooms and in the offices. You actually turned it into the setting for your first novel that came out when you were 41, coming from behind but there you are the title gives it to you coming from behind i felt i'd behind i'd been behind all the time and finally at this ripe old age i'd found my subject and my subject was failure envy disappointment and shame that four you know them that's a political platform we can all believe in but anyway, on the subject of football and intelligence you put a beautiful column one of my favorite ever written about the english national team you said they're not educated you said i'm not asking for footballers to be intellectuals but must the alternative be an empty-headed, idea-free game of ineffective huffing and puffing played by men whose highest aspiration is, <laughs> is a love bite somewhere visible from a lingerie model in Jimmy Choo's? It's a bit snobby, that, isn't it? It's a bit snobby. Are you trying to distance yourself? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm always ashamed of... Well, I'm always, I've told you, I'm always, I'm always ashamed of something I've written, particularly with something I've written like that after I've written it. Great fun at the time. But afterwards, it just sounds, it just sounds too snobby. And it doesn't admit the fact that I... I always say to my wife, I'm not interested in sport. I'm not like other men. I'm not interested in sport. She said, if you're not interested in sport, why have you been sitting in front of your Sky Sports Channel for eight <laughs> hours today? I said, well, it's not... Well, it's the, first of all, the darts. I have to watch the darts. And then there's the snooker. I have, but that's not sport. Yep. Well, why are you watching the football? Well, I want to see a team that I support doing badly so I can enjoy loss. So it would seem that I... Although I believe devoutly that I'm not interested in sport because yep. I could never play sport. The only sport I could play, with, and I played it with great seriousness, let me tell you, was table tennis. Otherwise, I couldn't do any sport. So I do actually believe when I'm saying it that I don't like sport, but I'm actually besotted by sport. Watch loads of it, know all about it. So I shouldn't be rude to sportsmen. Well, I tell you what I don't like, reverence for sportsmen. I don't like reverence for anybody. I don't think we should idolise anybody. And that's a problem with whether it's rock stars or sport. I don't mind people idolising novelists. <laughs> if you want to idolise someone, idolise a novelist. But even that, you can even overdo that. Don't idolise people. So when I write those sn apparently sneery columns yep. about footballers, it's the idolisation of them that I'm... You should, you should read... They're about, not role models. You should, should read about what Rio Ferdinand says about novelists. Boy, he's got some fine words for them. I t you also wrote this, which I love even more. You said, on one of my favourite topics, I turn on my television and I see John Terry and my heart sinks. 
Didn't Terry once beat me up in the school playground for not giving him my Cadbury's Flake? That's an English chocolate, listeners. Couldn't have. He wasn't born when I was eating Cadbury's Flakes in the school schoolyard. I feel bullied by him anyway, and watching him run out, I feel the game is not for the likes of me, which is not the effect of watching Mexico or Brazil. Do you know what I mean when I write that? Do you know that I mean that there's a certain kind of mean look on... Let's not name, but, but certain mean look on some Let's make English... Fo- Let's make John Terry. Some has-been. When, been when you watch him, do you see the Cossacks? The Cossacks is too glamorous. <laughs> the Cossacks... The, when the Cossacks came for my family and took my great-grandparents, they came in fine uniform. They came in, you know, with trousers tucked into their boots. At least they on horses. For it. Yes, they, they went in bloody they shorts. They had swords glinting in, the, glinting in the icy sunlight. It was... If you, if you went down to a Cossack, yeah. it was hero. Oh, wait, to go wait. down to John Terry in the school playground, there's no heroism in that. I never did go down to John Terry in the, in the playground. But it just reminds... There's a certain... I can't keep talking about John Terry. There's a certain kind of bullying, <laughs> bullying footballer that, and I'm not talking about John Terry now. That reminds who is John? Yes, I know who John. You, There's yeah. a certain kind of bullying footballer that makes me go a little bit. Cold. I've got to check. I've got to make a note of this. I always wanted to die in my sleep, but the way you've just described it, I want to fall to the Cossacks. You've made it sound incredibly glamorous. Most of your family probably did, Roger. Yeah, but we had a Cossack killer, like every family, which is a bit like George Best stole my girlfriend. Every family had the myth of a Cossack killer, a distant uncle who was always there to save us. My favourite football quote, let's get away from the Cossacks, back to something which is even more holy. My favourite football quote, possibly by anyone of all time, we talk a lot about it on the show, but we've got you on because you are the ground zero for this quote. You observe the defeatism that's always been a potent force at White Hart Lane, Spurs ground, until this season at least. You once said that if Spurs score within the first few minutes... 7,000 Jewish voices in the stadium mutter, too early, it's much too early. They clutch their heads. They go, I know, no, because they know. This is something that, this is something, I haven't come here to talk about, I've no more come here to talk about being Jewish than I've come here to talk about John Terry, but you've trapped me into both. It's something it's that... out it's, your pores, it's, all of it. <laughs> it's something that a Jew observes, something that I've always observed, and I think it's a Jewish thing to observe. A team goes ahead after five minutes, and people are screaming and yelling, as though, it's not over. It's only just begun, and you're tempting the gods. Wait, we won. What can go wrong now? Everything can go wrong now. So you don't want... What you want to do, if if you're a Jewish supporter, is you want it to be nil-nil until the last ten seconds of the game, (laughs) and then your team scores. And then there's no time for God to wake himself up and strike... No retributive strike from God to make it all wrong. But to go ahead early is a disaster. And how many times have we seen it? How many times do you see... So learn... Why don't fans learn a lesson? Don't jump up and down if you've won. Try not to... goals in stony silence. Silence. Silence and hope that nobody notices. (laughs) Don't don't stir the jealous gods up. Fewer more doomed and victims of fate than North London football fans. In your latest book... Shylock is my name, modern reworking of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, setting it into contemporary Manchester. You, for instance, reimagine the role of Gratiano, turn it into a cameo by a professional footballer who celebrates his goals with a quenelle, the Nazi salute, but claims he's not anti-Semitic because he's actually never fouled a Jewish footballer. See? It's quite difficult to foul a Jewish footballer. 
<laughs> He's probably searched high and low <laughs> to find the Jewish footballer to foul. But my idea was this, finding a new setting for The Merchant of Venice, and you have to find, I don't know how many of your listeners know The Merchant of Venice, but I'd like to think many do. It's three one of, of them. One of the great... Well, I'm speaking to them, yeah. you three. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great play. Um, and there is a very refined place in The Merchant of Venice that's not actually Venice, that's just outside of Venice, and I needed an equivalent to that. And I chose as that South Manchester, North Cheshire, which is where all the footballers live. All of them. All of them. Not just Manchester City and Manchester United, but probably Liverpool, Stockport S- County, Witness Town, St- exactly. All of the, all of pretty well everyone who can, who is not in London, lives in this kind Ex- of tiny couple of square miles. Exactly. They're all very wealthy. A lot of them are just young boys, 17 years old. They're earning millions, millions a year. They've all got about 10 cars and they're all living around here. I thought this would be a nice setting for this, where there is a little <laughs> bit of mild anti-Semitism. Not, they're not nuts. There's a little bit of mild anti-Semitism. And I give, I give the, Jessica, the daughter who runs away in The Real Merchant of Venice, I give my equivalent a footballer who gives a Nazi salute, which is difficult for the Jewish father to take. Hello, Daddy, I'm going out with a football. That's nice. Which footballer? Well, I'm... In fact, the lack of Jewish footballers still plagues us. I think British-born, there's still only one, the Welshman Joe Jacobson, who plays for Wickham Wanderers. I know you all know that, listeners, in League Two. Now? Yeah. Yeah, one. There's one. And I think, thinking about that, Howard, when I read the book, I realised... You were a hero of mine when I was growing up for this very reason. I remember making mixtapes for my friends, young listeners. That's a homemade cassette tape of your favourite songs. Just Google it. And I cut out, for the box, I cut out a photograph of you, your big Jewish face, and I made it the front cover. I mean, slim pickings. We didn't have many positive, out, extremely Semitic role models. If there was a Jewish footballer, I would have used him for my mixtape. So I was second best. You were it, Howard. But I was only there because you couldn't find anybody else. You, so if you're yeah. doing it now, you'd go for Wickham Wanderers. You'd go for Joe Jacobson of Wickham <laughs> Wanderers would be on the front cover instead of me. That's a nice compliment, Roger. Oh, the other thing I love about you is that your books are both hilarious but very dark. And you once attributed that to the fact that Jews tell the best jokes because they know life isn't funny. I can't answer that. That is absolutely true. When anybody says to me, why are Jews so funny? Why do they make the best jokes? And you've just given, you've just stolen my line, which is my answer. Because Jews, Jews above all people, know that ultimately life is not funny. And the best jokes are jokes about the, un- not the funniness of life, not the lightness of life, but the deep, dark, bloody seriousness of life. So it's funnier to make a joke about your family being killed by Cossacks don't, tell, don't ask me why. But that's funnier somehow than saying, hey, do you know what? I've just started a new business and I've made a million pounds. Laugh at that. No one will laugh at that. But did I tell you how the Cossacks rode over my granny? <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> you know why we don't make sportsmen? We don't make sportsmen because parents of the, certainly the, the generation that, that, that I grew up in, our parents didn't want us to hurt ourselves. My mother gave me an excuse note for games, which I carried in the back pocket of my trousers for eight years. I never played it, I just brought this note out. They would know the gym teacher or the games teacher would see it coming, and they'd say, don't you think you should get a new note? <laughs> so I'd get, and my mother would write a new note. I was always bilious. It was the physical injuries they worried about. They never worried about the mental injuries. That's why reason. they liked it when I was playing table tennis. Showed her the table tennis ball, she said, that, now that's a ball. That's the ball I want my son to play with. You can't get hurt with the table tennis ball. It's a safe game. And you know, the very first time I played a serious game of table tennis, 
and I was playing a guy from Liverpool, actually, a long, tall guy from Liverpool, who drove me mad because he got everything back. He defended, like, fanatically. Just incredible no, wingspan. Yes, no decency, not that kind of, that's a great shot, Howard, I'll let you win. He had to get everything back. And finally, the only way I could take him was to get him far, far back from the table, and then the perfect drop shot. He came running in to get the drop shot, smashed his knee against the table, and was carried out. An ambulance had to come, and he was carried out howling. And I'm 14 years old, I'm shy, I'm quiet, I'm thinking, what have I done? But somewhere in my little heart is beating, and I'm thinking, I've hurt somebody. I've finally, I've hurt somebody. Who do I tell? And I wanted to go home and tell my parents jubilantly, guess what, I hurt somebody. But of course, if I told them that somebody had got hurt playing table tennis, they wouldn't have let me play anymore, because my whole point about table tennis was it was safe. So I've, I've kept that secret. For one day, I thought I may be able to tell that story. And I tell you, Roger... When you finish a book, Howard, do you know it's good the moment you finish it? I mean, it's something you have lived with for so long. You, those who have not read your books, you, you craft these sentences. There's something incredibly classical about your writing. Aren't all dreads half desires? I mean, these are incredible lines. I imagine you pacing around your room to write this, agonizing over four or five words at a time. Your writing is so deeply personal and intimate. The second you finish, can you sense at that second, whether the book is a great book or just a good book, or if you lose all perspective? It's hard at the end of the book, but at the end of a day's writing, you know if you've had a good day's writing. And the sign is that you're making yourself laugh. Very important that I make myself laugh. I am called a comic writer, and then I complain, and I go, no, I'm a tragic writer. I like making <laughs> myself cry. I like making myself laugh and cry in the same sentence. If I begin a sentence laughing and end a sentence crying, I've written for me my perfect sentence, because there it is, the thing we were just talking about. The joke is the joke that life isn't funny. But the art of it for me has always been to craft and craft and craft to make it appear that there is no craft. I like my writing to appear spontaneous so it could be read, so anybody could stand up in a hall and read it and declaim it like an actor. But you don't get, you don't get spontaneous by being spontaneous. Any comedian will tell you that. A riff that looks as though it's just tripped off the tongue has been worked on and worked on and worked on. And the skill of it as a writer is to work to conceal art to conceal art. And yes, I mean, and I, I hope I'm good at that. And I do feel this in my Shylock book, I've kind of perfected this because partly the challenge was so great to write a novel based upon a Shakespeare play, to have Shakespeare in your ear. Whisper, and, if you, and if it's not good, you can hear him saying, you've missed it, Howard, you're not good. Howard, you've missed it. It's like your pair. Shakespeare is to me, as I say you shouldn't revere anybody. Shakespeare you can revere. You're allowed to revere Shakespeare because there is no greater than Shakespeare. Yeah. So to write with Shakespeare on your shoulder, listening, nudging, not good enough, Howard, not good enough, going to have to do better, going to have to be funnier, going to have to be sad. And particularly with Shylock, one of the towering, most controversial figures in literature, to take him on. So this has actually been my biggest challenge. So if I've passed this one, I can pass away happy. I, I collect a lot of vinyl and I've got an album from 1953, where they translated a Gilbert and Sullivan opera into Yiddish. And in Yiddish on the cover, it says Gilbert and Sullivan, whatever the opera was, it says translated and improved. <laughs> <laughs> that's chutzpah for you. A word for that is chutzpah. That's no, what, that's what I'm your, not going to know. Book is. It's no, Shakespeare. I'm, Improve. <laughs> if only that was so. He's improvable. But if he can even get close, yeah. to, if he can even sort of stay on the ground with him, if you like. I've got to talk to your publisher. They should have that on the cover. Your work, your life, 
it's been better appreciated the older you get, which I find fascinating. I mean, you are in many ways. You're like one of those 70-year-old decanter scotches that improves with age. Your career, it really hit pace when you're in your late 60s. You bought Kaluki Knights, game widespread acclaim. You then won the Booker Prize in October 2010 for the Finkler question. First comic novel to win the prize. In the run-up to that announcement, you told the media, I take no notice of prizes, really. Do you still believe that? Because your life was changed in one evening. Your legacy ensured. This prize business is very problematic. You don't write to win a prize. You win prizes at schools. Prizes are for school kids. And I believed that. And then, as, and then this Man Booker Prize thing became a very, very big literary prize. About the time I started to write novels, this prize appears as a, as a big prize. And I'm not winning it. And lots of reviewers are going, he should be winning this prize. And I'm thinking, I'm not interested in prizes. But if there happens to be a prize out there, just happens to be, so, so I shouldn't be on this prize. And people are saying to me, why aren't you? And then my family in Manchester are going, anti-Semitism? Is it anti-Semitism? <laughs> Even when the judges are Jewish, <laughs> it's this anti-Semitism that you're not... And I go, no, it's not anti-Semitism. What is it then? Well, they just don't like me. They don't like what I do. They don't like comedy. And comedy is always problematic when you write it for, if you want to win a prize. Because too many people disagree about comedy. You make a joke and one person likes it and one person doesn't like it. You can't complain about something serious. Oh, I'm not having any of this tragedy. We all like tragedy. We all disagree over comedy. So it's a risky business. And when I, find, when I wrote the Finkler question, everybody I was involved in, my wife, my agent, my friends said, well, we think it's a really great novel, but no one's going to understand it. It's not going to be, a, this is not going to be a popular novel. And out of nowhere, the novel I least expected wins it. At that moment, I suddenly think, prizes, yeah, prizes. They're very, very good things. You experience, I imagine, just a cocktail of joy that normal human beings, i.e. me, just will never be privy to. But your joy, and I always believe this, joy is always short-lived. There's always a darkness seconds afterwards. For you, it was very real. Yeah, it was short-lived for my mother, though. My mother had believed I would never win this prize and she would ring me up each morning in the run-up. How old's your mother? My mother is now 93, living in Manchester, of course. And she, and she was uh, ring, ring me up every day and said, you know, you're not going to win this prize. I said, I know, Ma. She said, it's too, the novel's too Jewish. You're not going to win this prize. I said, I know, Ma. She rang me up the day of the prize. She said, now, you're not going to go to this dinner and think you're going to win. I said, no, I'm not. And I wasn't. I wasn't. She was right. It was too Jewish. And then she said, I'm not watching the news or anything. Um, and then I win the prize. And I, and I ring her up to see, because I think if she's not watching the news, I better tell her that I've won. I find two seconds. The world's you, you press is there. From the, the event. From the in event. Tuxedo, yeah, in tuxedo got... everything. The world's press is waiting. People are pulling me. Howard, Howard, they're waiting from Namibia, free press. I want to talk to you. Just a minute, I've got to ring my mother. I ring her, I say, Mara, and she said, oh, no. I've been watching it on television. But you know what? I'm so fed up. They stopped the news. To show, just while you're making your air acceptance speech, they say we now have to go over to Chile, where do you remember the Chilean miners had the been 33. in thirty-three? Yep, they'd been underground and and they'd and they'd come out, and they go over. She at, says at the very second, at the very second, the award, they they started yeah, to pull them out. The, the camera, yep, yeah, the camera's left me. My mother said, "I'm going. I'm look, waiting for you. I'm going." My, she said, and the, "For the Chile, she said they'd been in there six months. Couldn't they have waited another ten minutes?" I imagine you realise at that second, in that instant, that you, Howard Jacobson, will never become obscure. You will be remembered after you are gone. 
Yeah, that, well, I'll tell is you. Is that liberating? Used, yes, it's well, relief. I kept saying to, to my wife, Janet, it's relief. The thing I most feel now is relief. I now don't have to think about prizes, pretend I don't care or do care. I can never think about them again. It's not true, of course. You still go on, you still go on thinking about them. But it's... it's Does jealousy huge. evaporate? I mean, I've always wondered in terms of motivation for writers... Jealousy never jealousy. evaporates. Jealousy never evaporates. It evaporated for six months. And then you think... And then I think, I'm never in, I've seen other writers and they want to win again. And I think, I don't want to win again. You've won. What more do you want? You've won. Enough now. And then your next book comes out and you think, oh, why is he on the list and I'm not on the list? And then you think, and I now have the formulation right. The first time you win the, the Man Booker Prize, you win for you. First time you win a big prize, you win for your book, but for you and your reputation. Then your reputation's made, you're well-known, you can sell books, people want to read you. But the next time, you want the book. It's for the book. My last novel before Shylock is my name, called Jay, which is a very a dystopian novel, rather tragic novel, and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. And many people, two years ago, many people thought we're going to win it. I thought, yeah, I'd like to win it. For, but for the book. Not yeah, for me, not for, you, not for not me, for you. not for me, yeah. but, for, but for the book. What's the best age of life? What's, what's now. Been the best for you? Now. Every day now is good. Life for me got better, uh, A, when I met the person to whom I'm married to, um, and, uh, and it co coincides, really, I'm, and turning 60. 60 was great. 60 is fantastic. And it's being talked about more and more and more now that 60 is the play. You know, there are studies coming out saying happiness increases in people. Well, sense of well-being increases in people when they're 60. You would never believe that. I remember being 25 and thinking my life's over. And then 40, my God, it's over, it's over. And if I met and saw people of 60, I thought, what are they doing still being alive? They've got hopes. They've got dreams. What do they want to stay alive for? That, what for? And then you get there and you think, my God, this is wonderful. It's the promised land. You've reached a plateau. There are things you're not in quite, quite so much competition with other people as you were before. You no longer expect to be the greatest table tennis player in the world. You're no longer rocking, looking for untold wealth and beautiful women to fall at your feet because they just do anyway. You're just happy. All you're just happy being. All over Manchester. Young men are saying, Howard Jacobson stole my girlfriend. But let me ask you, <laughs> you, you've won the Booker Prize. You're happily married. If young Howard Jacobson, a man who once said, all my books are apocalyptic, I've never met an intelligent optimist. If young Howard Jacobson had known you would gain personal happiness late in life, and the big one, the Booker, the Champions League trophy of writing, do you think you would have, could have been a bit more optimistic? Yeah, my books wouldn't have been as good. I needed to feel as bad as I felt to write the kind of books that I wrote. And I'll tell you something, I will still write books that make you feel bad. In fact, the one I've just written, Shylock is my name, is in the end quite feel good because I give Shylock a little vengeful twist. This is a novel about revenge. Shylock needs to get revenge. I can't change the story and I'm not going to, I don't attempt to change the story, but I want to give him, I want to give him an opportunity just to strike back, a quick moment of wit, a quick moment of intelligence which pierces those who, who tormented him. That's more feel-good than anything I've ever done, really, and the novel I'm writing at the moment is, you know, entirely feel-bad. For what I am personally in my life and what I write, they are not the same thing. And it might be that you need... And I remember, Jenny, we had this conversation when we, when we were getting together and getting married and thinking... I said, I'm so happy. She said, well, I'm pleased you're happy and I'm pleased you're happy to be with me. Is this going to ruin you, though, as a writer? 
And we had a little, we worried about it and went out for a slap up meal and some good wine. And I said, is this, gonna, this happiness going to ruin me? This, this ha-. So we, we worried about it more and went out for another slap up meal and had a night at the Ritz and, you know, worried about it some more. Uh, it hasn't. I've never been more productive. I've never been more productive, and each novel is more bleak and bitter and sardonic and cruel, but I hope funny, still funny, than the last. I don't think you can write a book out of a feeling of well-being. I've still got such a memory, such, a, such stored memory banks of misery and disappointment and failure and acerbity and bitterness. I can draw on those forever, and it doesn't matter now. Like if vast oil reserves. It's that, exactly what it is. I draw on the vast oil reserves. The vast oil reserves of disappointment. Last question for you. We've got a lot of young listeners. What's the greatest secret that you have learned along the way through your life that you can share with them? Find an activity that you love. Um, try to be certain it's an activity that has value and devote yourself to it. Don't be a dilettante. Don't try to do everything. Don't follow in anything. Don't follow other people. Find in yourself the thing you think you can do and nurse it and nurse it and nurse it and be faithful to it. And it will be, a, if, it's, if it's art, I mean, I think everybody should make art. I think art is the most wonderful thing. Paint or write music or sing or write novels, the, for me, the greatest thing of all, because that is an escape from the self. In art, it's an escape from who you accidentally are and to find something more permanent about yourself. And then pursue that. It's a cruel mistress but love her. Love her and serve her. One of my favourite quotes of yours I read recently, you said, for all my misery, I must love the world a lot because I dread leaving it. Yeah, that's good. I can't improve on that. I do. And I, um, my new novel, Shylock is my name, begins in a cemetery. Um, it doesn't end in a cemetery, but Kaluki Nights ended in a cemetery. I seem to begin novels in cemeteries, end novels in cemeteries, and I'm working on having the entire action set in a, <laughs> set in, set in a cemetery. But the interesting thing about it is set a thing bleakly and look at the worst to come. That paradoxically is a source of immense energy. My, my favourite moment in Shakespeare is when Hamlet, the famous scene in Hamlet, in the gravedigger scene, and Hamlet is holding the skull of Yorick, who used to be the king's jester, famous comedian, dead now. And Hamlet, who's m morbid and mad on death, looks at the skull and says, get thee to my lady's chamber. Tell her, let her paint an inch thick to this favour, meaning to this appearance, pointing to Yorick's own face. To this favour must she come. Make her laugh at that. And that's the one for me. Make them laugh at death. That's what comedy's for. You just described why I love football, Howard Jacobson, <laughs> in the most beautiful fashion. <laughs> it's a joy to be with you. Your book, Shylock is My Name, is out now. Howard Jacobson, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your wonderful show. It's lovely talking football all morning. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Men in Blazers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Okay, so if you had a time machine, how far uh -huh. in time would you need to go back to be a dominant basketball player of that era? <laughs> I need to go to when Bob Cousy was playing. Back I in, would, in the plumber days? 27-year-old Shay would give Bob Cousy the f***ing business. <laughs> He's not guarding me. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are 
back. We have a new podcast from Wondering. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the best. Each week, Shay and I are combing through all of the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling ones, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Six Trophies ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.